Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Nick Mason of Pink Floyd on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Deep Cuts Media. That rainbow prism, those pigs, they can only mean one thing. Yes, Pink Floyd. And those pigs are back, just in time for the Floyd's upcoming release in April of their The Dark Side of the Moon 50th Anniversary Double LP UV Printed Clear Vinyl Collector's Edition. In this first Story Behind the Song Encore episode, I revisit my interview with drummer Nick Mason about the legendary song Time from Darkseid, which he co-wrote. Apart from the barrage of clocks that lead the song, it's Mason who introduces Time with an unforgettable percussive opening that essentially happened by accident because of serendipity in the studio. We also discuss the tragic story of founding member Sid Barrett and his shocking last contribution to Pink Floyd that is the stuff of rock and roll legend a haunting song, Jug Band Blues, that ends their second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. So take a listen as we dive deep into a timeless The Story Behind the Song episode with Nick Mason, drummer of legendary band Pink Floyd. You're going to be touring again in a couple months. You're starting to kick off your Saucer Full of Secrets tour in Europe. Yep, that's right. And really looking forward to it. I mean, we did a lot of shows last year and I loved all of it. So actually, we'll just hope for more of the same. And then after Europe, you're going to Australia. But uh, are you coming back to the States? We haven't got a plan at the moment, but obviously we'd, we'd love to eventually. Tell me a little bit about your journey into just becoming a musician. Well, I had a rather good t-shirt that said, some men strive for fame. This man loitered into it, which <laughs> I think spelt it, spelt it out. I mean, I was always interested in music, but I, that was not the path that I thought I was going to, to take. Um, as you, people may know, basically, I started training as an architect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, fell in with a bad lot because uh, amongst the other students was one Roger Waters and another Richard Wright. And so we just sort of put a college band together, really, in order to play a song that someone else had written. I think that was it. And uh, we we learned this song, played it, and the publisher said, well, the song's not bad, but the band are terrible. And that probably fired Roger up to, yeah. to really get going. And so we, we sort of went from being a college band and almost over a three-month period became the new thing because everyone was sort of looking to see what was going to happen next. It wasn't really us who were going to happen next, but we somehow got swept up in the 
<laughs> in the movement. So what uh, would you, oh, sorry. What, yeah. what would you, what would you say would be, what was it in the very early sound that led to you being the new thing on campus? Well, I think it was probably two things. The first was really Sid Barrett's ability to write. I mean, so much is of rock and roll is made from, uh, you know, unique writers, virtually every band that we know and love. Uh, they're not playing covers. They're playing their own material. And Sid was a real talent in his own right. And then there was, there was a sort of move towards this, uh, I hate the word psychedelia, but it's sort of relevant because it was this sort of slightly free form, slightly less related to singles. Up until Sgt. Pepper, the, the industry was run by uh, the idea of having a hit single. And sort of post Sgt. Pepper, suddenly there was a new, completely new look at, at how music worked and what people liked. Suddenly we were away from the 2.5 minute single and uh, able to work in a completely different way. What was the mindset going into it? Did you have any real mindset about it other than what you just said, which was a little bit more free form and not as structured, but was there any kind of thinking at the time when you started that, okay, this is something that I'd like to, I I'm an architect student, but now an architecture student, but now I'd like to really pursue a long career in the music world or is that not even in your mind no, at the time it, it, it never occurred to us i mean you have to remember that we're talking about sort of 55 years ago no one thought that anyone could make a living beyond <laughs> a year if that in in the music industry it was all about sort of teenage kids and if you'd said to us you know 50 years from now you won't be uh, you won't be a bank manager you'll be uh, still desperately making music i'd have gone you know, mad i mean i have to say that you know my year master at college i'd done four years of architecture and he invented the gap year that would never you know which was to say listen go on you can have a year off give it a go you can come back and re you know get back onto your course sadly i've never been able to get back the formation of the name most know about it, but many out there who are listening do not know the origins of Pink Floyd and how the band, which was previously Sigma Six, right? Well, the answer is I can't actually remember whether we were the Megadeth, Sigma Six, Leonard's Lodgers. <laughs> there were various, and we were definitely at one point called, uh, in fact, just before we changed to Pink Floyd, we were called the T-Set. And what actually happened was we were playing this gig out, I think, Northolt, North London. Uh, the, prom the promoter there came backstage and said, OK, guys, you're on. I'm going to introduce you. What's the name of the band? And we said, the T-Set. And he <laughs> said, sorry, no, you can't be the T-Set. They're on now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny. We needed a new name fast. And Sid had got some of those old, you know, R&B records. Yeah which included some songs with Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And I think Sid just said, all right, then we're um, Pink Floyd. We could have been Anderson Council. <laughs> well, it kind, of, it kind of makes sense from what you were saying, though, too, also because of Freeform uh, yeah. and jazz and all that. And these were two jazz musicians. And, and so the, the fit of it all. But the road to time and 
there's so much that we can get into, but the song echoes, which it seemed to be a bridge going into dark side of the moon and echoes is a song that you co-wrote as well. So is that for those of you who don't know that song, it's incredible. It's um, something like 22 minutes, but it, it, it harkens really to dark side of the moon, but was there an intentional, did you see that there was something unique in that song that led you into the direction of going into the studio when you went into for dark side of the moon? I don't think so. I think we were still playing around with how to make a record full stop. And I think, you know, I certainly see that there's a sort of, if you like it, there's a main road of albums that, uh, so we went from Piper to Sourceful of Secrets and then Metal and then Dark Side and then Wish You Were Here. That those those albums sort of hang together and, and lead one to the other. And then a lot of the other things from the period, particularly something like uh, Atom Heart Mother, was actually a sort of, an alternate an alternate trip really uh, and didn't relate certainly didn't relate to dark side in fact whereas I, I, I certainly think echoes had something to do uh, although funnily enough echoes and shine on you crazy diamond probably the songs that sort of almost dovetail together in a way in, in the way they're approached and, and recorded. Interesting. So when you went into, from Echoes and the album Metal, when you went into the studio or preparing to go into the studio for Dark Side, what was your state of mind and the band's state of mind at that point? Well, unlike almost any other album that we did, the great thing about Dark Side was that we did actually meet and talk about what, we thought this album was going to be about. And there was this sort of idea that we would take the things that we were most anxious about ourselves, which was to do with money and mortality and, and so on. And so there was an actual sort of plan there right from the beginning. And also just a, around that sort of time, it was just before bootlegging <laughs> it, and so consequently, in, in some cases, some of the tracks we were actually playing live, sort of really sort of developing them. And then that got sort of knocked on the head when everyone got panicky about bootlegging, which actually was less alarming than, than it's compared to pirating. Yeah. Later. Yeah. It was nothing. But yeah, so that, so we had, you know, we actually, uh, rehearsed in a way, playing live, which is a very, very good way of working. The, the problem with going into a studio is that you tend to more or less feel you've got it when you just, when you play it properly. You don't develop it that much. You you just want to get it right, and once you've got it right, then you move on. So, for you going in as a drummer. Did you see your style evolve from the early, obviously the songs, the early albums are very different than as you get into the evolution to Dark Side of the Moon and then beyond that. But was there a, how would you, how would you describe your own growth as a drummer from that time? I think I'd probably describe it <laughs> sadly underwhelming. Come on now. <laughs> I was, no, I think I was, you know, when you th look back to what was in some ways a, a golden period, I, I have these fantastic, iconic 
drummers who I was constantly trying to copy. And of course, they were wildly different in how they did it and approached it. So Ginger Baker was enormously influential on me. If it wasn't for Ginger, I wouldn't be here now. It was seeing him with the double bass drum and in a band where the drummer was part of it rather than on a <laughs> on an orange box at the back. Right, right, right. Um, but then, you know, there was also Keith Moon. And then uh, for me, the, the other guy who was really influential was Mitch Mitchell, because we toured with Jimmy uh, in 67, 68 over Christmas. And I got to know Mitch. And I have I still think he is, I, w I won't say sort of undervalued, because I think a lot of people recognize his, his brilliance. But his his style is extraordinary in terms of pulling things back and keeping it light. And it wasn't a, the, the sort of heavy metal thrash of Ginger or, or Keith. He had something really unique. And I think uh, if that would be where I began to try and, and go myself. Well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned that something a little bit light and on many of the songs, well, on... I know the discography very, very well. And on all this song, or many, or most of the songs, it is a light touch, a fairly light touch. Time is very different than that in many respects. And it's the sig the, the percussion, the drums, is such a signature part of that song. Do you recall, and I don't know if it was one continuous process where you were you had these ideas as a band, like you said, you were talking about different things that scared you as individuals and that's how you approached it. But do you recall actually sitting down together and writing time? No, I don't, because I don't think when, when I talk about what, how we approached it, I don't, we initially approached it with a, you know, pad of paper and a pencil just writing down the ideas there was no music it was it was actually a, about agreeing on what the theme and the subject was and yeah. then Roger going away and writing lyrics and when you come to something like time I mean particularly given the, the Rototom intro section um that was absolutely spur of the moment in studio three at Abbey Road because someone had actually left a kit of a, a set of rototoms in the studio and they were due to be picked up by one of the percussion rental places. I'd never seen rototoms before. Interesting. And, and it was just one of those things where you go, hey, these are good. Let's let's see what we can do with these. It, 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 well, I don't think anyone came to pick them up. I was going to say that, you know, we, it all had to be done in two hours in case a man arrived right right away uh, i don't think it was that bad but you know it was very much a case and and that would be true of some other tracks i imagine i can't quite remember but occasionally there would be something in the studio that we had access to certainly for instance i suspect we never would have owned a mellotron but i'm sure at some point uh, a Mellotron was available in the studio. And they had a few other quite interesting instruments that were left there permanently. Pretty amazing. So there was just a, a, a great deal of serendipity, it sounds like, in terms of how the sounds came together 
with the ideas that you all had. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was of the time. I mean, the, the people, of course, who, who really kicked that off were, were the Beatles, particularly with, with not Giles Martin, that's the son, George, George Martin. Yeah. Out of Studio Two was coming flanging and phasing and, you know, all sorts of backward tape and backward echo and what have you. You know, there, there was a lot of stuff being discovered then. Was that the most adventurous album then, going into it and just freeing yourselves from being overly structured and allowing yourselves to pick up different uh, elements? Good, good question. Because in some ways, the album is is remarkably what's the word? Do do do. What do I think about that? It's not a sort of. It's not a loose album at all. It's actually. A pretty, uh, pretty strict, really, in the length of the sections and how it's recorded and how how it's put together, and in fact, particularly how it's put together. It, we were still seen as being this sort of wild psychedelic group, but Dark Side is anything but that. It, it's a very, pretty carefully constructed <clears throat> piece of work, I think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So at the the beginning of time, you have the what I've always felt in my head the the almost like a horse's gallop, the that type of percussion. What was that choice that you had? You know the, uh, you know what I'm talking about, of course. The bump, 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 and then it breaks into oh, the, the TikTok, song. TikTok. Yes. Well, yeah. Beyond the clocks, though, the clock strike, and then you have the the. The rototoms, the rototoms. Okay. So the rototoms, they were in the studio. It's, you said that it was spur of the moment sort of thing, but was that apart from the music or the sounds that they made, was that galloping pace? Was that something you already had in mind? No, I don't think, well, not that I remember. Um, you know, so I say, I think the, the kickoff was the TikTok thing so but it, it funnily enough the the, the rototoms do play time related to the tiktok but it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty loose i suppose is what i'd say yeah yeah well and then it breaks in to the song itself yeah. with with and the drums there you get away from the the light touch and it's back into a sort of band playing but I think, you know, the other thing that I mentioned, because I, I think it's really important when one's talking about the success of Dark Side and the 50th anniversary, <laughs> is that Roger's lyrics are so extraordinarily relevant to, you know, written by a 23-year-old, but relevant to a 50-year-old. 
Yeah. That, that's definitely part of, you know, part of the story and certainly to do the longevity. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. What? It's just a, what, that's one of the lyrics that goes down in, in time memoriam, you know, forever. Yeah. And it's, it's truly, it's truly that way. So was, was it a difficult album to make? Enjoy uh, was it enjoyable for you? Was it a difficult album? Uh, definitely enjoyable and not particularly difficult. I, I mean, it took a while, it took quite a while to do, but in a way, it was nothing like as difficult as the follow up album, as Wish You Were Here, where we really cast around for quite a while to find any sort of starting point. Uh, I mean, I think Dark Side, we, we had, we were. I was not naive, but we were fairly young and fairly sort of fresh and fairly anxious to get on with it all because we not only made Dark Side, we did the uh, the film of Pink Floyd at Pompeii. Yeah. Um, and we did a whole raft of gigs uh, during that, that year. So going into the album then, you did, and as you were recording it, you didn't feel pressure of any kind is that correct like you didn't feel at that point in your career that there was a it was more an enjoyable experience it, is that the way it felt to you yeah i i mean i think we we were not naive enough to think that this album was going to change our lives you know yeah. there's no guarantees of anything like that so we were really enjoying i think enjoying making it and developing it and so on <clears throat> sort of pressure comes later when um you know when you've set a set a standard or set a bar yeah uh, one number one are you going to get another one well yeah I, I can imagine so there's we could go through the whole album but there's just for a limited time but the great gig in the sky again another just uh an amazing song and that it's almost like a duet with you with the drums and with Claire Torrey, who's the singer, the vocalist on that. And was that freeform with you and her in the studio? How did that come together? Well, we'd done the back, basically, we constructed a backing track. Claire came from Alan Parsons, who met her, and she was a, a classical singer, really. Yeah. And she came in, and I think, I suspect. She got three or four different ideas of what we thought it should be. Um, there was very little direction. I mean, I remember at the time talking about Kathy Barbarian, who uh, was a singer who did a lot of very modern classical music, which would have been a, a, a bit, it wouldn't have been quite right, right for what we actually ended up with. And uh, it was very much her just being given really rather unhelpful directions and told to more or less, well, see what you do. I can't remember how many passes we did, but it, it was sort of one session, and a session was about three hours. So, I mean, it was less than three hours of, of singing and recording to get to get that to get that track. So it, it was quite freeform then. So it was essentially, yeah. okay, here you go, <laughs> take off with it, do yeah. do what feels good, which is pretty incredible. Okay. So 
that timeless, amazing song took three hours. At least the vocal took three hours. Yeah, and probably less than that, probably half of that. So from start to finish, from going into the studio to being finished with that album, how long was that overall process? Well, difficult to say, um, around six months, because we kept taking time off to do other other things. In yeah. particular, the Pompeii film was made during the recording of Darkseid. And I remember because we were also trying to fit gigs in at the same time, we had to cancel some of the gigs in order to finish to finish the filming, not not the album. That delayed things. And in fact, uh, we found ourselves a year later having to fulfill some of the gigs that we'd cancelled. At the time we cancelled them, we could fill a theatre. A year later, we could <laughs> fill a stadium. So when you finished the recording, did you know that this was special? We knew it was the best thing we'd done by far. But we also knew that there was no guarantee that that would bring success or that people would necessarily like it. We were sort of disappointed with what had happened in America over the our first five years because we were sort of making progress, but not quite, you know, not quite bre really breaking through. Um, so it was... You know, it was enormously satisfying when when the album did go to number one. So how do you feel as a, a young man who obviously you had had as a band, you had great successes, but nothing at the level of that. So when that is so transformation and transformational in one's life, how does that feel? How do you even absorb that as a young man at that point? Well, I think a lot of it sort of, breezed past us in a way because we were very busy sort of playing America and touring and consequently we didn't spend that much time sort of congratulating ourselves <laughs> at all I mean it's curious really it gave us more leeway in terms of production values and I think we we got really quite involved in how we were going to make this work and what else we could do to make the show work because we were still at that point where we weren't a band that people still are to some extent a band that was recognizable so we were still caught up in this people were beginning to use television and uh, video with the shows so we got involved a lot more in making films to go with the shows rather than expecting to show ourselves on big screens. And so you actually get stuck in into the work rather than, as I say, rather than endless presentations and dinner. Yeah. Well, again, that and that was always from the very beginning. The visuals was such a huge part of the show, and it was almost the visuals and the band was there as if you didn't want to be overly noticed, you know, as a... Yeah. Right. Um, so when you first saw the album cover, <laughs> what what was your reaction? Um, I think we all had the same reaction. Uh, I think Poe and Storm, brought, <clears throat> they brought down to the studio a whole bunch of ideas. And I can't remember what the, all those ideas were. All I remember is all of us saw the prism 
and went, yes, that's it. That would be great. And in fact, I think they were rather irritated with the fact that we all went, that's great. That's what we want. Go and do it. No, we don't want to see all your other horrid pictures. And so they backed up all the other pictures, which then appeared on all sorts of other albums with other people and probably that's interesting uh, on, on a, some of our albums as well i mean they were very prolific storm and bone yeah well and it's fascinating that how big how massive that has become and how lasting that too has become and and just part of the de definition of who you are as a band and it's non-literal it's not certainly not obvious when you think of Dark Side of the Moon or Pink Floyd to have that prism. So it's it's quite remarkable, actually. How do you feel about the album 50 years later? Like, what what is your overall reaction to it all? Well, first of all, very proud of it. I think there's all sorts of aspects to it that are, are terrific. And I think, uh, you know, it's enormous credit to EMI and Abbey Road because we're talking about a 50-year-old album that still sounds terrific. It's still a great stereo test record. Probably like most people, when you listen to it, there are things that I would, <clears throat> if I could, I, I would change. Funnily enough, I think I'd mess around a bit with the running order of the record. But I mean, it's, That's interesting. Why? In Tell us a little bit more about that. I don't know. I think it's because on the run... I'll tell you why I think it's probably something I think about, because I think live it would have been better to have had the on-the-run track let further into the album. Hmm. But that's just, you know, that's <laughs> nonsense, really. But it's perfectly good as it is. Yeah, but, it worked. I think it worked out okay. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so let's go back in time a little bit. To the namesake for your new band that you formed a few years ago, Saucer Full of Secrets, Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets, and go back to that album, Saucer Full of Secrets, because there's obviously there's something special in that that led you to forming the band with this name. So tell us about that very different album and why it did become the origin for your band that's touring now. Well, I think, first of all, I have a great soft spot for Saucer. It has all sorts of hints and clues as to where we might go later on. And it also deals with all sorts of things like a sort of goodbye to Sid. I still think Jug Band Blues is one of the most tragic. That's, that's the song I was going to ask you about, oh, right. about, about well, Jug Band Blues. I absolutely love it. And I think it's the saddest sort of goodbye song ever. And that whole thing with the song itself and then the silver band from the Salvation Army. It's And that's just one song. And for me as well, there's also <clears throat> Set the Controls, which have, is a great track for a drummer. Because oh, yeah. It, it's so basically, I don't think I've ever played it exactly the same ever. There's, there'd always be something that's a little bit different. Or, Would it even be possible to play it exactly the same? Yeah, well, I couldn't do it. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anybody could do it, but that's it is what's magical about it. But Jug Band Blues is the song that I was going to ask you about from Saucer, which is your second studio album. And where the first album and, and 
for all you Pink Floyd fans out there, obviously, you know this, but Sid was very much up in front and very, and I think he wrote most of the songs. And But yet now we get to Saucerful and Sid, this is the song that ends that album. And it's Sid's only song contribution on that album. And the first lyrics from that song, which is quite haunting, actually. And I've seen the videos, too. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm awfully considerate, considerate of you think of me here. And I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. <laughs> and was, was there a message, do you believe, to the rest of you? Oh, yeah, I think so. Or certainly, if not to us, to the world at large. Yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. What what was the mood like recording that with Sid, where it was, he was in a very different position with the band at that time after such a short period of time with the with the success of the first album? Yeah, I mean, it was very much that was the the last knockings really of of Sid, and after that, it, it ends the album, but it certainly wasn't the last thing we recorded <clears throat> because what we actually were doing was getting ready really to to carry on without Sid and when when I look back on it I think it's really quite in a way surprising because at that point Roger had written one song Doctor Doctor which not his greatest work in my opinion but somehow there was some element of confidence that made us think we could carry on without Sid and I still to this day am puzzled by that because it it would appear that you know you'd think that we were about to just fold it fold it up and go back to architecture or whatever <laughs> but the reality was that there was still enormous amount of drive and enthusiasm and we did think we could carry on and we could do something which itself is a remarkable thing after the first album where sid was so much up and out front And so when it was when Sid's song, which it wasn't the last song you recorded, but it was placed last on the album. Was that intentional? Was that almost a farewell? Everything's yes. You you don't sort of. There are many happy and unhappy hours spent trying to run the running order of of an album. Uh, We must. I don't remember it, but I know that we would have considered it very carefully for quite a long time and then you mentioned the salvation army band at the very end at the fade out and you have this cacophony really and how did that happen well i think it probably owes some quite a lot to sergeant pepper Ah. in terms of how did that happen i suspect the hand of norman smith maybe but or maybe yeah that's the sort of thing where i just don't remember yeah, how we got there, but that was absolutely sort of how we went about messing around with the recording. Business. I really urge everybody out there if you haven't listened to the album Saucer Full of Secrets, you must, and you know the entire album, and then get to the last song that was Sid's last song for Pink Floyd. The and Jug Band Blues is is really haunting, and also look up that video to see that performance because that also is pretty haunting okay so and you chose that album the second album for the name of your band 
rather than the first piper for the name of your band? Was it, uh, you mentioned a little bit, but was it because that album was just more in line with your, just your sensibilities than the first album? And yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we, we do do a number of the tracks that Sid wrote and so the, some of the singles, but I think that sort of launch into <clears throat> slightly freer, a freer style of playing and recording was something, a, a sort of moment that I'm particularly fond of. Yeah. Well, I hope you come to the United States so we can see and listen to that part of the tour or that part of your background and the music that you play. So now with that, I want to get into a little bit of extra credit, Nick. I would just go through a lightning round of different things and, and that I want to ask you about. So in this great discography in 50 years of Pink of Dark Side of the Moon, but then obviously the band continued on for many, many years. What is your favorite Pink Floyd song if you had to choose one? Well, the trouble is it depends on sort of what sort of basis. I mean, in terms of prob probably the cleverest song that's fun to play is something like Comfortably Numb. Mm. Uh, first of all, because it's got one of the most, the drum part is as, about as sparse as one could possibly make it in in the first verses, which I really like. And then there's a, a sort of lovely, you know, full on guitar anthem at the end, with which is again great to play along with. Yeah, and, you know, and, and and very free in terms of how it's done and what to do. You can sort of more or less uh, certainly take the lead guitar part and follow that and it'll be different. I, I love that thing where things are different. You don't play it exactly the same every every time. Yeah, this gets back to the free form from the very beginning, you know, the band's roots. What would you say is your, what would you be most proud of in your career and your crowning achievement? <laughs> well, longevity, managing to, managing to stay around yeah. for 50 something years of playing. I don't really know because I don't think there's sort of one thing, I think. And you, you occasionally get that thing where someone comes up and tells you how much the music meant to them. And I think that's a moment where it's a little bit humbling and a little bit where you think, oh, good. Well, that's really nice to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's the sort of element that you think, yeah, that was a good thing to do. Okay, so now going to Momentary Lapse of Reason and the song Learning to Fly. Mm -hmm. So that is your voice that you hear from yeah. your... <laughs> from your first solo flight, correct? No, it wasn't my first solo. It oh, it was, wasn't? Okay. No, no, no. That, I don't think we ever thought of recording a first solo flight. There's far too much to do. But, but was that was that so your voice? It, it, was, it is my voice. And in fact, what I was doing was I was training to fly a twin-engined plane at the time. And so I was with my instructor, 
I can't remember whether it was at Biggin Hill or, or where it was, but it was slightly more elaborate because in terms of the radio, because you've got a two engine thing and you've got yeah. an undercarriage and it's a, it's a bit more technical. So it seemed to work quite well as a piece of uh, audio. So do you like flying more or do you enjoy driving at speed more? Because there's clearly a speed element to everything everything you do which is very different than than your drumming which is a more of a light touch so yeah, <laughs> yeah i play the drums to relax yeah <laughs> which is um, funny no I, I for me what what's great is the fact that all these various things complement each other you know there's something great about uh, motorsport because you're on your own in the car there's there's no one else there to help you or tell you what you should be doing are you um, still are you still doing that? Are you still racing? Uh, well, I'm more or less just saying I'm going to stop. I think as I hurtle towards my 80s, I think there's a point at which elderly rock drummers shouldn't be allowed out in racing cars. <laughs> and I've got uh, most of my family have got competition licenses. So I've got enough drivers really around me. That's interesting that others in the family have inspired them to speed on the motorway. Uh, well, no, I've got, I should perhaps make it clear that actually I've got some uh, rather rather upmarket family members. I've got a son-in-law and a bro his brother, who's Dario Franchitti, who was a sort of three times IndyCar winner. So, ah, wow. It's not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Um, his brother, Marino, is, is my son-in-law. And Marino's really good as well, so... We've got it covered, really, on the driving. Yeah. yeah. Any more flying or no? You're not flying? Uh, yeah, no, still flying, but helicopters. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you more go. Interesting. More interesting. So <laughs> so you have a the tour coming up, and do you have any new music that you're working on? Uh, no, we might. We're always sort of looking at the uh, repertoire and but it, it was very clear that what this was going to be was a, a sort of a look at the early days of Pink Floyd, up, up to but not including Dark Side. Because once you get to Dark Side, everyone knows the songs backwards and they want to hear it exactly as it was on the record. What's so great about the earliest work is that we can play it in the spirit of, yeah. of what it was. And I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then of course, and I just happen to have it here. I want to show you this, Nick. I I do I do happen to have your book, which is for those of you who are Pink Floyd fans out there, Inside Out: Personal History of Pink Floyd. This is Nick wrote this many many years ago, and I this is not just something I purchased now. This is something I I bought back back then, back in the day, and it's pretty fascinating. It has wonderful photographs in it too. So there's the book. Other projects that you have right now that that are taking your time or that you're focusing on um well no i have to say main focus is going back on the road and sort of preparing for that i suppose but there there are always other interesting things that were involved in i mean the big thing was the exhibition we did at the vna museum in london about yeah. four or five years ago well that's sort of recently just been in montreal and I think is about to be moved to Toronto. And that's been a really interesting exercise. It's been great to work with Hypnosis again, but also Mark Fisher's company, Stu Fish, 
there's opportunities to, to sort of use some of the things that we've done over the years and, and make something else out of them. Yeah, no, that's an immersive exhibition for those of you out there. And it was in Los Angeles, too, after it was in London and just smashed it in London. And, you know, I hope it comes back to Southern California, too. Was it in New York City, Nick? Uh, not yet. And I think probably will that will be on the cards for the future. Yeah. Okay, and then I would be remiss to ask, to not ask, is it ever possible that the band will come together? I have to ask for everybody out there. I think it's highly unlikely. I think, <laughs> but I would have said that before Live 8 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. The one thing I could think would be possible would be if there was some if by getting back together we could influence either saving the planet world peace or whatever whatever hopefully would step up but i don't think that otherwise and it would take it would take a nelson mandela or someone like that to lead on, on it. well look if there's anything on the planet that would bring people together it would be pink floyd coming back together like that would be a momentary non-lapse of reason where people would get together and the, the whole planet would tune in on that one so everybody out there nick didn't completely shut it down which is which is you know, gives a glimmer of hope that there's a possibility that that will happen so nick you it's 50th anniversary dark side of the moon saucer full of secrets your band will be touring later this year you have your book and i think you have a second book that's out there too Thank you very much for giving us the guided tour of the beginnings of the band and Dark Side of the Moon and then getting into Saucer Full of Secrets too, which is a gem that people should discover if you haven't discovered it yet. So Nick, really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining. Okay, very welcome. That was Nick Mason of Pink Floyd sharing his story behind the band's timeless track, Time, from the album, The Dark Side of the Moon. I'm your host, Peter Chotti of Deep Cuts Media. Reach out to me at peter at deepcutsmedia.com with your feedback and ideas of which artists you would like me to interview next. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can tune in each week for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.